1: Thanks be to God for his word. Uh, Please take out your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. 1 John chapter 4. Since we started our Advent series... We've gone two weeks. We saw the first week that Jesus is our peace. We saw last week that Jesus is our hope. I really was thankful that we took a week to talk about Joseph, who gets hardly any love around Christmas time, even though he did something very, very important. So we talked about Jesus, our hope. And then this week, for the third Sunday of Advent, we are focusing on Jesus, our love, as Kathy just lit the love candle for us. You know, the last time that I was in the pulpit here was uh, several weeks ago. I think the week before RC got back from his sabbatical, and I preached about it, was a very personal message from, from my heart to yours about the the riches of God's love for us in Christ. Like it was about Christ's heart for us, his heart for us in our sin and our weakness, and all those sorts of things. And so here I am back again teaching about the way that Christmas reveals. The love of God for us. And so I did think for a split second early last week, I thought, man, I'm going to be like labeled the guy who always comes up and tells everyone how much God loves them. Uh, But then I immediately thought, that's not such a bad thing to be branded if I have to choose. So once again, we're going to look together at the relentless love of God for his people and how we can see this love clearly in the Christmas story. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, what this great love should compel us to do. What we should do in light of how much God loves us and what Christmas shows us about his love. You know, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I really, I love this, this time of year. I love cold weather. I, I love uh, getting bundled up in the jackets. I love fireplace. I love hot chocolate. I love all that stuff. I love Chris, all things Christmas. But I also know that Christmas can be very hectic Intense and stressful as well. You know, my kids have really only spent Christmases in uh, Belgium, and Christmas is cool there, but it's not quite so like pedal to the metal in Europe like it is here. (laughs) Like, um, And and, and this, this Christmas for me and my wife is like the first time that we're like, man, there really is a difference between... Christmas as a kid and Christmas with kids, right? It's like a whole other other level of insanity. And so I see you guys like, yes, I know what you're talking about. You know, from Black Friday to Christmas Eve, it's like retail across the United States turns into like a war zone as people are like frantically trying to get all the gifts for their kids. Uh, especially, you know, we got a supply chain crisis. So everyone's like, all right, we got a short supply. We got to get some presents for our kids. Things are insane. I, was, I heard a few stories about different, just chaotic things that happened in years past at Christmases, uh, things that probably cause some people to get like PTSD triggered whenever they hear like a, that first Michael Buble song come on the radio. Uh, for instance, uh, ch- while trying to beat out other customers for the last video game console at Walmart, of course, a, a woman in California, also of course, uh, <laughs> did what any of us would have done. She did what any of us would have done. She Pepper sprayed everyone in front of her. Took out 10 people in the frenzy, right? You know, like you do when you're trying to get an Xbox for your kid. Uh, I heard a story about even some grandmothers who've got, who got who got in on the action. I heard a story about three grandmothers who threw down. I mean, rolling around on the floor, kicking, pulling hair, biting, uh, punching, all this stuff. All over a Furby for their grandkids. Who remembers Furbies? Anyone remember Furbies? <laughs> Maybe some of our students in here, you have no. thank God, you have no idea what a Furby is. And for some reason in like 1998, every kid in America had to have a Furby. If you don't know what they are, Google it later. Uh, Furbies were like little demon monster gremlin things, right? You'd like keep them in, like they, you'd have them up in your closet in the middle of the night and you'd have the door closed and like you just hear it talking in the middle of the night. It was insane. Um, and so imagine, just imagine for a moment, picture, you're in your late 60s. And you are physically fighting another person, also in their late sixties, over a Furby for your grandkids. Right? That was—that's insane. So this is why our message today in, in the Advent season is so important. Uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus, our love, and the world definitely needs to see a little bit more about what true love looks like. I'm not sure. What motivates someone to fight over a toy like that? Maybe it's love, but maybe it's not love the way God designed love to be. <laughs> um, we love our kids so much that we're willing to burn through our wallets around Christmas time to get them a, a special toy. Even a toy that they, don't, like they, they, they won't remember. Or like I told my wife this year, I said, uh, you know, why don't we just get our kids both? They have so many toys, let's buy them one gift each. And Morgan's like, "No, it's Christmas. You're a monster. How could you say that?" My kids are three and four. I'm like, "They're not gonna remember." Uh, Well, Morgan went Christmas shopping yesterday, and I'll uh, I'll let you guess how many presents the kids have. I'll let you guess who won that one. Uh, We love our families and friends so much that we say yes to all of the six million different Christmas parties and gatherings and events that, that 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 we get invited to. You know, love and Christmas are inseparable. But all of our expressions and experiences of love at Christmas are shadows of something greater. At least that's what they should be. Shadows of something greater. Shadows of the greater substance found in the story of Advent. So this morning as we look at our passage and consider again the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to see three things. We're going to see love displayed, love defined, Love displayed in Christ, love defined in Christ. And then we're going to see what love compels us to do. What this love in Christ compels us to do. So let's look at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. This is God's word. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The first thing I want us to see is love displayed. Love displayed. The love of God is displayed in the manger, in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have never experienced or received love like the love that we see and experience when we look at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we experience at Christmas, all the things that we love, the people, the gift, the honey-baked hams, the feelings that we get as we open our presents, they're all great, but there is something better. Something that all of these good things are pointing us to. If you remember, uh, the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were all written by John, same person. And John was the disciple, he was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was probably the youngest, or one of the youngest, if not the youngest of the 12 uh, disciples. And he had a special relationship with the Lord. He and the Lord were, were, were probably closest of friends on earth. John was probably Christ's closest friend on earth. John became known as the apostle of love because he was so captivated by the love of God revealed in his friend Jesus and he loved, John loved, to stress the implications of God's love in our lives. And here in verse 9, John shows us the greatest exhibit of God's love for us. He says that the love of God was made manifest in Christ at Christmas. The love of God was made manifest in Christ at Christmas. John loves that word. If you ever read John's gospel, his words, John loves the word manifest. In the Greek, it means to bring to light, to make visible, to show something plainly. You know, I was thinking about that earlier this weekend. I asked, I I told Morgan, I said, hey, listen, you know, our kids have never really seen Christmas lights, like houses decorated up for Christmas. And so, um, we just as a matter of fact, even as I'm thinking about it now, I'm not sure my kids have ever really seen Christmas lights. I mean, Brussels, the downtown was really, really decked out with Christmas stuff, but there was always like there was always this weird like threat of like maybe something would happen, like crowded European city, you never know what could happen. And so I never wanna bring my kids down there. And so Morgan and I would go down there, but I never brought my kids down, I was gonna babysitter for the kids. So they'd never seen Christmas lights. And so we said, you know what, we're going to get in our van, we're gonna drive around and we're gonna listen to some Christmas music and we're gonna look at these lights. And as we were doing that, I started thinking about, there's so much gospel parallels here in this tradition of, of lighting up our homes, lighting up our trees Jesus Christ, the reason that we're celebrating, came to this world to shed light on the great depths of God's love for this world. Jesus Christ is himself the light of the world who shines light to all men to show us God's heart for this world, God's heart of mercy and tenderness in this world. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the burning star at the center of the solar system of God's love. He's the one who shows it to us, who makes it manifest to us. We can only see and know how deeply God loves us when we look at Christ and his leaving glory to come to this world is the ultimate sign of how much God loves us. I love the song we just sang, Hark the Herald angel sings. It's my favorite Christmas hymn. I, I, one of the reasons I love December is that we get to all sing that song. I get to sing that song and not get made fun of for it. And probably my favorite line in that song is, Mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die. What a rich thing to say. He lays his glory by, born that men no more may die. The humility of the Lord Jesus Christ to come to this world to save us. All true love begins with God. All true love is meant to be a mere reflection of the greatest love that God has for us. That's what John is saying here. If you're looking for true and lasting love under a tree, or around a table, you're settling for a shadow rather than the real thing. A good shadow, but ultimately not the real thing. Love begins with God. It finds its substance in God and it only lasts if it derives from God. How many people around this time of year are left hopeless emotionally vacant because they are looking to themselves or other people as a source and standard for love. They feel like they don't have any loved ones around them. They feel like their friends have betrayed them or left them or forgotten about them. They feel the unworthiness and the lack of love in their own hearts. And so they're left miserable in this time of year. Because they've looked to something other than Christ, the love of God revealed in Christ as their source and standard for love. And what that always does, Christmas time or not, is it leaves us vacant because it's not true, lasting, deep love. You know, because of our sin, all of our love is flawed to some level. Because we are sinners, the type of love that we can get is flawed. At some level, when you break it down, there's a flaw in there. All of the love that fallen humans experience and give is tinged with some degree of vice. what What do I mean by that? Like, we give gifts, but maybe there's some part of us, maybe a small part, that wants to be seen as a really generous person because we gave a great gift. We kind of want the person who got that gift from us to tell other people, man, he got me this gift. It was awesome. That guy rules. There's some part of us that does good out of a desire to be respected, loved, or owed something in return. Maybe a good example of this would be, have you ever given a great gift to someone? Like an awesome gift to someone. And they open it up. They love it. Their face lights up. You're like, yes, this was a great gift. And then they say, well, I have a gift for you. And it's just, not nearly as good as the gift you got them. You're like, man, I got you an iPad, man, what the heck? Would you give me a keychain or something? Like, I don't know, something like that. Like you don't feel like, I don't feel like I got a gift that, 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 that is commiserate with the gift I got you. There is a, a bit of selfishness and pride underlying our generosity. We can't escape it because we're sinful people. So we can't be the standard for true love because our love is always flawed on some level. Only God gives and loves perfectly. And that's good news because God isn't looking for us to create love from within ourselves. Instead, God is looking for us to receive love from him and then in light of that, pour out that love upon others. God is love and God sends love. Therefore, he says, stop looking around at the world to find sources of true love, to define what love is and look at me instead. Look at what I've done for you in sending my son. God is the source and standard for true deep love. This reminds me, I'm gonna quote another hymn of of another great Christmas hymn. We're gonna sing after the the message today, Joy to the World. My my favorite verse from that song, uh, that uh, that whole song's great. One of my favorite lines, verses from that song is, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. He makes the nations prove the wonders of his love. First of all, from a poetic songwriting standpoint, Isaac Watts is at the top of his game. That's an incredible line. That's an incredible thing to write. So packed and dense with meaning. But consider that. Think about that line. He makes the nations prove. In other words, look at the nations Look at how Christ deals with this world and see the wonders of his love. When it's all said and done, no one will be able to deny that Jesus Christ loved this world. He loved the people of this world and that it was us who rejected him. Why is Christ's love in this song? Described in terms of wonders. Have you ever, outside of singing that song, have you ever thought about God's love in terms of the wonders of his love? I wonder, what are the wonders that Watts wants us to feel as we sing this song? God has all authority. Psalm 115 tells us that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God only does things that please him. God never acts against his own desires. God will never do something that does not bring pleasure to his heart. God only does things that will please him to do. So what an amazing, unbelievable truth that God in his wisdom and mercy chose to bring himself pleasure, to please himself by lavishing his love upon us. He did not answer our rebellion with immediate judgment. And even the judgment that he does pour out upon this world, if you remember from our Revelation series, is meant to woo people's hearts Toward repentance, so that they would be able to escape his judgment and see clearly the tenderness and mercy that he has for this world. You know, we tend to think of mercy as something that someone shows reluctantly. Like, you wronged me, you offended me, and I really wish that you could get what you deserve, that you could get your comeuppance for it, but you know what? I'm gonna be the bigger man and I'm gonna show you mercy. That's how fallen people show mercy, imperfectly. But that is not how God's merciful heart deals with this world. He shows mercy and love because that is what most naturally flows out of his heart. To show mercy and to show love is what pleases him. And when we stop to consider how deeply the nations have offended against God's law, when we think about how severely we have assaulted his holiness and righteousness, when we deeply consider how much we do not deserve grace, we cannot help but be left awestruck at the wonders of his love toward us. He makes the nations prove the wonders of his love every time we look and see Christ in a manger. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that the world would reject him and murder him. Yet in their rejection and murder of the son of God, he procured salvation for all of his people. In our rejection and murder of Christ, he secured salvation for all who would turn to him. Life point, brothers and sisters, behold the wonders of the love of your God. This is the beauty of the Christmas story that we often blow by in the speed of the season. Love came down at Christmas, and what great love God has given us, from his heart to yours. In sending Christ to us, love is displayed in God sending his son. But it goes further. Love is defined by what that baby would grow to do. That's our second point today. The love of God is defined on the cross. So love is made visible, it is most clearly seen. In God sending his son to us. But John takes us deeper to see that love is not just displayed in the story of Christmas, but love is defined in the why behind Christmas. Look again at verse 10. John says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son. There's the incarnation, there's Christmas, that he has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, There's the cross, there's atonement. John says, in this is love that God sent his son, but it doesn't end there. That's where most Christmas celebrations end. We end in the stable with six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus. But John doesn't stop there. And so neither should we. The Christmas story is powerful because it did not end in Bethlehem. The Christmas story is powerful because of what happened on Calvary. Calvary. John says that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that word mean, propitiation? It means wrath absorber is how we can understand it. The one who deters God's wrath away from us and takes it upon himself so that through his death, the wrath of God toward us is slaked, completely satisfied, no wrath left for us. Instead, salvation, life offered to sinful people. That means that propitiation should be as much a Christmas word as presents, peppermints, and parties. Jesus being our propitiation is what makes Christmas, Christmas. It's why we celebrate that Jesus is our peace in a world of chaos. It's why we know that Christ is our hope as we walk through all sorts of seasons of suffering and heartache. When the lights finally come down, the meals have all been eaten, the presents have all been opened, and the Christmas songs stop playing on the radio, the story of Christmas remains powerful because of what that baby would go on to do. The cross is what gives substance to the Christmas story. The cross is what gives substance to the Christmas story. Jesus could have been born of a virgin. The shepherds, wise men, angels could have come and celebrated his birth. He could have grown and kept the law perfectly. But without the cross, all of that would be meaningless to us. It would not do anything for us, and we would all still be dead in our sins. You see, we didn't just need a baby. We needed a savior, someone who would grow out of the swaddle and become our sacrifice. Someone who could live the righteous life that we could never live, go to the cross, die the death that we deserved, and so take upon himself every last drop of God's judgment for us and then free us through his death and through his life. To live the life that God created us to live. To know the love that God designed our hearts to know. Love then is defined in that Jesus, the Christ child, was born to die. In the manger we see the love of God made manifest. And we know this to be true. We know that the manger shows us God's love. Because we know that that baby would grow, die, and rise again to prove it. I love uh, the, the great French theologian, John Calvin. I love his words on this. He said, For it was not only an immeasurable love that God spared not his own son, that by his death he might restore us to life, but it was goodness the most marvelous, which ought to fill our minds with the greatest wonder and amazement. Christ then is proof of divine love toward us so that whenever we look upon him, he fully confirms to us the truth that God is love. Paul even confirms this in Romans chapter five, verse eight, where he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God displayed in Jesus isn't marked by Warm feelings and just overall niceness. True love from God to man is marked by sacrifice. Laying down oneself for the sake of others. The great church father, Augustine, talked about how every human was searching for a love that transcends our experience. We all know that there's something missing in the love that we give, and in the love that we receive. It's good, it's great, but it's not perfect. And even when it does feel perfect, it doesn't last. There's something missing in the love that we can give and the love that we experience from others. What John does here is ground us in that transcendent love Augustine spoke of. John says that love isn't subjective, It isn't left for you to determine what it is yourself. Rather, it is found in the sacrifice of our Savior. We live in a world, brothers and sisters, where people are constantly trying to define love from within within themselves or within all the wrong things. Love is treated as though it is marked by niceness. Oftentimes when people say, we should love each other. Come on, kids, we ought to love each other. Come on, everyone, let's sing a song about loving each other. All you need is love. What It, it typically just means be nice to each other. But is niceness it? Niceness is nice. But is that it? Think about it even for yourself. You don't want to be known as just nice not that good of a word. If you were walking into a room, before you, before you walk into a room, you hear two people talking about you and you think, oh, I'm going to listen to what they're going to say. And, and you hear them say, oh yeah, I know Jordan. Yeah, he's nice. He's a nice guy. That's not good enough, right? That's not, that's not, you're like, oh, that's it? Just nice? That can't be enough to define what love truly is. The world says that love tolerates, accepts, even agrees with Everything someone wants. That love always aims to make people feel good about themselves and validated in their desires. As though you should feel validated in your desire simply because you had that desire. In the world's eyes, love is often defined by itself. You hear, everyone lives by a creed, right? Christians have creeds. Secular people have creeds. And one of the secular creeds of our day is Love is love. Like, like a snake eating its tail in a constant circle that leads you nowhere. Love defines itself by love. It means, that means nothing. It doesn't even make sense. And unfortunately, this gives us, this leaves people with a hollowed out and weightless definition of love. It makes love a moving target. It makes love based on something that flows out of sinful feelings coming out of sinful hearts. No wonder there's so much loneliness, anxiety, depression, hopelessness in our world. True, lasting love is defined ultimately by what God has done for us in Christ Love is about laying down yourself for the sake of others. Love is about aiming your devotion at the grace, or I'm sorry, at the God of love and living in light of his mercy and grace. So brothers and sisters, I implore you, reject the vapid love of this world. And lift your eyes to the cross and see the love of God defined for you in the clearest way it can be defined. And then let that love work in you to extend it to others, which is what we're going to see in our final point. Love demands. The love of God was sent to be shared. Look again at what John says in verse 11. Beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The love of God displayed in Christ or the, the love of God is displayed in Christ and it is defined on the cross. But John wants us to know that that love cannot terminate on us. It doesn't end with us. It doesn't hit us and then stop. I believe it's very very important for us to bask in the sweetness and the glories of God's great love for us. But that cannot be where it stops. When the love of God grips the heart of someone and captivates their minds, it changes the way that person loves other people. The love that God has given us gives us reason to love other people and it shows us how to love them well. But at the core, it gives us a reason to love other people. God's love displayed in sending Christ was directed at you, but not you singular, not just you singular, you plural, all of us. And if God has lavished his love upon your neighbors, your family, your friends, your coworkers, then how can we not be compelled to do the same to those around us One of the great things about Christianity is how it shaped the world. If you were to go out on the street right now, I think, let's say you go out on the street and like not here in the Bible Belt, let's say you go to New York or LA and you go ask people, should we love other people? They'd probably say, yeah, you should. Should we love the poor and the marginalized? Yes, of course, we should love them. Now, whether or not people are consistent in how they live that out is another story. But we all tend to agree We ought to love one another. That's why the Beatles can write a song, All You Need Is Love. And everyone in the culture goes, amen. Where did that come from? You think it came from Greece or Rome? No. In Greco-Roman society, if you were poor and downtrodden, you were beneath everyone. You were despised by everyone. No one would think, oh, we need to help this person. We need to even build social welfare systems in order to keep people from going, going hungry and dying of starvation. No one thought that. No one thought that. When, when people would have babies, they didn't want to say, oh, you had a baby and it was a little girl, and you said, I really wanted a boy. Well, what are you going to do? Send the baby to an orphanage? No. You're going to take that baby out to the woods, leave the baby in the woods to be eaten by animals or succumb to the elements. That literally happened. Christians were the ones who would start going out to the woods and rescuing these babies and bringing them, bringing them back and raising them. My point in saying this is the general consensus we have in our society today that we ought to love one another came from Christianity, it came from the church, it came from people taking this seriously. See, this this command to love one another isn't just something that's for your interpersonal lives. This is a force that has shaped civilizations. This has shaped cultures. This has provided agreed upon presuppositions by everyone that has led to laws and customs. Christianity shaped the Western world in ways that that the Western world may not ever even be able to shake. The point being, this is a radical love that God's calling us to to live. A love that doesn't come naturally to people. But it's a love that not only can change and shape your life individually, but it can change and shape communities, nations, continents, as it has. But let's think about our lives. We all have people in our lives we just don't like. (laughs) We all know people who annoy us, frustrate us, drain us. I remember talking to someone one time. There's a guy who's having trouble with another guy. And we're trying to figure out, why is this relationship not clicking? Was there, you know, asking questions. Did they hurt you? Did they say something about you? And at the end of the day, it just got down to, do you just find him annoying? (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I just find his personality annoying. We all have people like that. Perhaps you have family coming in for Christmas and you're just dreading their arrival. Maybe you have a cousin who always seems to antagonize you with political conversations. Maybe you're that cousin. (laughs) Someone who you know at some point, they're going to throw the Trump grenade in here. They're going to throw the vaccine grenade in here and it's going to ruin the whole thing. People maybe who you feel like don't offer you the respect that you deserve. Or people whose personalities you just find utterly insufferable. But allow your heart to be confronted with this truth. If God did not find it within himself to be so put off by that person's flaws, that he withheld his love from them, then who are you to withhold your love from them? If God in his infinite mercy and tenderness did not spare his own son, but gave up his son to bring reconciliation between himself and that person, then who are you to withhold reconciliation between yourself and that person? It was G.K. Chesterton who said, love is loving the unlovable, or it is no virtue at all. And of course, that echoes the words of the Lord Jesus. If you love only those who love you, what benefit is there to it? It's not really love. Love is only love. Or love is loving the unlovable, or it is no virtue at all. The message of Christmas beckons us to see that love was sent to be shared. Christmas is about the gospel. The gospel is about reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God through Christ and therefore Paul tells us that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation to call people not only to be reconciled to God but to bring reconciliation between us and other people. We are people of peace, hope, and love, the type of which the world finds strange because it's so different from the way the world experiences peace, hope, and love. We love our enemies. We love the outcast. We love the frustrating. We love the annoying. Why? Because God loves us and he loves them. And if it pleases the heart of God to lovingly extend his arms to anyone who would come to him, then we as his people must also be willing to extend our arms in love and openness to receive our neighbor's Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So how do we do it? What are some examples of how we can do this? I hope that you've been reading or that that you you have your Advent devotional book. You don't have to pull it out or anything, but I hope you've been able to go through it with your family. If you haven't yet, it's a great time to start tonight. And so uh, I hope it's been a blessing for your family, but I hope you notice at the end, At at, at the end of the the weekly devotions, there's activities for you to do with your family, and some of them are really like kid-centered, but some of them are missional. There's always like a missional component. Here's a way that you can engage your family, because we talk about living sent a lot, and you might think, well, how can I do that? Well, here's some examples of how to do it. Well, instead of quoting some of those examples, I wanted to give you uh, a brag on my wife for a minute. Last year, uh, obviously we had Christmas in Brussels, and we had um, COVID Christmas. It was lockdown Christmas. So maybe some of you elected to have Zoom Christmas with your family. Maybe some of you chose to do that. We didn't have a choice. Uh, In Brussels last December, if we had had one person in our home on Christmas Day, we would have been breaking the law. Well, Well, breaking whatever policy that the Prime Minister unilaterally handed down without any debate, but that's another conversation. My wife... It, it was really hard for us. It was very, very hard for us. Christmas was already hard because we were away from our family. But it was even harder because we couldn't see anyone. And so uh, my wife decided, well, we have to do something to like show love and, and engage people with Christmas. We can't just not do anything. And so my wife, we had, we had um, nine stories in our apartment building. Now, it wasn't like nine stories with multiple apartments. It was nine stories, each one with one apartment on it. And so we had nine families living in our apartment building with us. And so my wife turned our little small European kitchen into like this amazing bakery. And she, my wife is an incredible baker, like unreal uh, when she bakes stuff. And so she made this like, like, I don't know what it's even called, like a, like a apple cinnamon loaf of bread. It was, it was amazing. And so she made this like special, like... Um, like frosting to put on and everything it was so, so good, and so um, I ate a few of them probably by myself, but she went, and she her, her French in, in Brussels, her French was so good, and so she she would write um, scripture in French and like a like a French message about here 's what Christmas is about, love the Raven family on the first floor and so or second floor for America, but first floor in Europe. And so she uh, she gave one to all, all of the people. And it was amazing. Some people in our apartment building didn't respond to her. But there was one guy in particular, an older man, and they kind of became lockdown pen pals for a while, writing letters back and forth to each other. And My wife was able to engage him with the gospel, even though we were in a sticky situation. I tell you that not only just to brag on Morgan because she's awesome, but also to say this is, a, this is something that inspired me. It really moved my heart to see her do that because that was saying, what is my situation and how can I, in this situation, live sin in a practical way, bless other people, but also point them to Christ. Many of you have given sacrificially. I know that we gave a lot of of those shoebox Christmas gifts that that are gonna bless all all kinds of children all over the world. Uh, Some of you are planning, maybe you've already given to the one-day offering, which again is so special to my heart because it helps fund the the ministry in Brussels and not only Brussels, but in Bangkok and and, and a lot of of, um, local projects as well. But understand something. You can be philanthropic and still not be loving. You can be generous and still not be loving and still neglect the greatest needs of those around you. See, love, godly love, isn't just writing a check and then being done with it. The kind of love I believe John has in mind here is the love that we see manifest in a manger defined on the cross, a love that is humble, Sacrificial, selfless, and a love that points people to Christ. John says that if we receive this love, we ought to give this love. We ought to love our enemies, reconcile with those who wronged us. Hear my words there clearly. Reconcile with those not only whom we have wronged, but who have wronged us. Ministry of reconciliation means I'm seeking reconciliation with you, even if you are the one who offended me. This is sharing the love that God has sent us, and all of these things pointing people to Christ. This is what Christians have done for centuries. Remember, John wrote 1 John to you, in so much as it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore beneficial to all of God's people. But remember, John didn't know who we were, John didn't even know that this continent existed. He wrote that command to show love, to show the love of God, point people to Christ through our love to people who lived a long time ago and they got it and they did it. And they showed love to their neighbors who passed down the gospel, pointed people to Christ until it reached us. We are Christians because for generations, other believers have taken this command seriously. And Christians who get saved generations from now will be saved because we took the command seriously. Christians do this well. For all of, of the complaining we can do about the, 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 the shortcomings in the church, Christians give generously and sacrificially. We outgive everyone else in society, like by a long shot. We are the most generous people in the world. Why? Is it just because we're all great, awesome people? No, it's not. It's because we serve a great and awesome God who gave to us generously. And so that works in our heart to compel us to give back to the world and show the world what our God is like in the way that we are generous. That's why we do this. And when we do this, the spirit of Christmas lasts a lot longer than the 25th. This is the Christian life. This is what God saved us to do. Love was sent to be shared. So, have we shared it? Those people I was talking about earlier, hopeless, emotionally vacant, searching, longing for true love, those aren't just hypothetical people. Those are your neighbors. Those are your family members. Those are your coworkers. Those are people with souls created in God's image and designed by God to know him people whose hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. What are we going to do as the people of God to show them true love, the true love displayed in Christ and defined on the cross? So as we come to the end of our time together, I pray that we will be able to see the love of God so clearly. I pray that as we celebrate the birth of Jesus again this year, that it would take on a deeper significance to us. I pray that we would be able to sit in awe at the wonders of God's love for us, revealed to us in Christ. And because we've received this love, I pray that we would be people who would be compelled to share this love with others. You know, for some in here, the first step to sharing God's love, to marveling at God's love, is by surrendering to his love for the first time. I know that there may be people in this room who do not know Christ. So what I would call you to do today, surrender yourself to his love for you. Of course, when I say surrender, I don't mean like in war, surrendering to your enemy so that you can be thrown in prison. Surrender to the God who made you and wants to free you and enable you to live the life he made you to live, the God who loves you more than you could ever dream someone could love you. That's a great thing to write on the blue card we talked about earlier. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus. Life Point, Stewart's Creek, it is always a tremendous honor and privilege for me to come and deliver the word of God to you on the Lord's day. Thank you for listening. And I pray That by God's grace, we would be able to see the love of God made manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is himself the life and light of all men. Let's pray together. Father, we worship your son. Father of mercies. Father of goodness most marvelous. We exalt you we exalt your son and we exalt the holy spirit the god of love who from your very heart lavishes your love upon this world the people you have created for your glory we your people are so thankful for what you have done for us in sending christ forgive us when we keep this love hoarded in our little groups or in our churches or in our houses rather than going out and showing this love, showing the world what you are like in the way that we love, showing the way your love comes to bear on our lives. Show us how we can do that, Lord, and give us the willingness and strength to obey and follow where you lead. Christ, you are the king of glory, eternal son of the father. You did not despise the virgin's womb, but came to this world, taking upon human flesh, subjecting yourself to pain, ridicule, mocking, beating, death, betrayal, heartbreak, so that you could redeem a people for yourself and save us from our sins. All praise be to Christ for what he has done. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Why don't you stand and worship with us?